Welcome to the Poetic Resurrection Podcast, where we explore perceptions. How self-reflecting questions can give you a better understanding of self. I'm your host, Sonia Iris Lozada. Stay tuned. Today we have Martin Espada who has published more than 20 books as a poet, editor, essayist, and translator. He is a winner of the Ruth Lilly Poetry Prize and a finalist for a Pulitzer Prize for the Republic of Poetry. Welcome. Thank you, Sonia. It's good to be here. I would love to hear you read Letter to My Father. Well, thank you. I'll say a few things by way of introduction, and then we can talk about the poem after I've read it. Mm -hmm. uh, Letter to My Father is a poem I wrote in October 2017, my father, Frank Espada, was born in the mountain town of Utuala, Puerto Rico, in 1930. He died in Pacifica, California in 2014. His grandfather, Buenaventura Roig, was the mayor of Utuala. His mother was born there. Uh, it was and remains the cuña, the cradle of the family. And so I was devastated when the hurricane struck in the fall of 2017. And we now know that that hurricane cost more than 4,000 lives uh, between Hurricane Maria and Hurricane Trump. More about him later. Suddenly I saw Tualo everywhere. This town that's never mentioned, unknown in this country. It was um, on television. It was in the newspapers. It was online because this town had been obliterated by the hurricane. In fact, uh, John Lee Anderson wrote in the New Yorker that Utuala, quote, has become a byword for the island's devastation. And I began talking to my father about it. The odd thing is my father had been dead for three years. In point of fact, I was talking to his ashes in a box on my bookshelf. I was talking to him as if hey, he didn't know about the hurricane and Utuala, but he could still hear me, strangely enough. Mm -hmm. And that's how it started. This organically, I began talking to his ashes in the box on my bookshelf. And this is the poem that resulted. And it's called Letter to My Father. October 2017. Yuan said, My reward for this life will be a thousand pounds of dirt shoveled in my face. You were wrong. You are seven pounds of ashes in a box, a Puerto Rican flag wrapped around you next to a red brick from the house in Tualo where you were born all crammed together on my bookshelf. You taught me there is no God, no life after this life, so I know you are not watching me type this letter over my shoulder. When I was a boy, you were God. I watched from the seventh floor of the projects as you walked down into the street to stop a public execution. A big man caught a small man stealing his car, and everyone in Brooklyn heard the car alarm wail of the condemned, he's killing me. At a word from you, 
The executioner's hand slipped from the hair of the thief. The kid was high, was all you said when you came back to us. When I was a boy, and you were gone, we flew to Puerto Rico. You said, my grandfather was the mayor of Utuado. His name was Buenaventura. That means good fortune. I believed in your grandfather's name. I heard the tree frogs chanting to each other all night. I saw a banana leaf and elephant palms sprouting from the mountain's belly. I gnawed the mango's pit and the sweet yellow hair stuck between my teeth. I said to you, You came from another planet. How'd you do it? You said, Every morning, just before I woke up, I saw the mountains. Every morning, I see the mountains. And Utuado, three sisters, all in their seventies, all bedridden, all Pentecostales who only left the house for church, lay sleeping on mattresses spread across the floor when the hurricane gutted the mountain the way a butcher slices open a dangled pig and a rolling wall of mud buried them, leaving the fourth sister to stagger into the street, screaming like an unheeded prophet about the end of the world. And Utualo, a man who cultivated a garden of aguacate and carambola, feeding the avocado and star fruit to his nieces from New York, so the trees in his garden beheaded all at once like the soldiers of a beaten army, and so hanged himself. And Utualo, a welder and a handyman, rigged a pulley with a shopping cart to ferry rice and beans across the river where the bridge collapsed, witnessed the cart swaying above so many hands that raised a sign that told the helicopters, Campamento los olvidados. Camp of the Forgotten. Los olvidados wait seven hours in line for a government meal of skittles and Vienna sausage or tarp cover the bones of a house with no roof as the fungus grows on their skin from sleeping on mattresses drenched with the spit of the hurricane. They drink the brown water waiting for microscopic monsters in their bellies to visit plagues upon them. A nurse says, These people are going to have an epidemic. These people are going to die. The president flips rolls of paper towels to a crowd at a church in Guaynabo, Zeus lobbing thunderbolts on the locked ward of his delusions. Down the block, cousin Ricardo, Bernice's boy, says that somebody stole his can of diesel. I heard somebody ask you once how Puerto Rico needed to be free, and you said, Tres pulgadas de sangre en la calle. Three inches of blood in the street. Now, three inches of mud flow through the streets of Utualo, and troops patrol the town, as if guarding the vein of copper in the ground, as if a shovel digging graves in the backyard might strike the ore below, as if La Brigada swinging machetes across the road might remember the last uprising. I know you are not God. I have the proof. Seven pounds of Ashes in a box on my bookshelf. Gods do not die. And yet, 
I want you to be God again. Tried from the crowd to seize the president's arm before another roll of paper towel sails away. Thunder Spanish obscenities in his face. Banish him to a roofless rainstorm. And Utualo, so he unravels one soaked sheet after another till there is nothing left but his cardboard heart. I promised myself I would stop talking to you, white box of gray grit. You were deaf even before you died. Hear my promise now. I will take you to the mountains, where houses lost like ships at sea rise, blue and yellow, from the mud. I will open my hands. I will scatter your ashes. That is amazing. I mean, I'm, I'm, it's like I was feeling everything you were saying because for the audience, it is also my heritage. There's so many things that you said within that really touch me. The three inches of blood, but now there's really three inches of mud. Everything crammed together in the bookshelf. The fact that your dad had a brick house is a social status in Puerto Rico as well, which I don't know if people know that. Uh, most houses are stucco and wood. When you wrote this, and I know you presented it, and it's gotten so many accolades, and it's well-deserved. I went through it, and I noticed certain cultural expectations. The fact that most Americans, I mean, I was getting calls from friends telling me, oh, I didn't know Puerto Rico was part of the United States. I'm like, yes, it is. When you got the response on the poem, tell me the history of it, because you want, you were in, which I happen to have, Poetry Magazine's March 2018, which I have bookmarked since then because I love the poem and I related to it because of my heritage also being Puerto Rican. Tell me the story of how you got it in the magazine. Or yeah, well, it's, it started off, ironically, I submitted it to the New Yorker first and got no response, got no answer. So I talked to a poet friend of mine named John Murillo, who in fact uh, is uh, an Afro-Chicano poet from, uh, who grew up in L.A. And John said, you know, why don't you try Poetry Magazine? They've been very good to me. You know, Poetry Magazine was not always diverse. It was not always open to people like us. Uh, and so I gave it some thought, and then I said, yeah, okay. And I sent it to the editor, Don Scher. He was the editor at the time. He is no longer the editor. And I got an immediate response within, you know, I think less than 24 hours. Wow. He wanted the poem. And, he, you know, he explained, well, I can't get it into the magazine right away, but I can get it in by March. And he did. It subsequently led to many other things. The poem became the subject of a, a podcast on uh, the poetry website. It ultimately uh, would lead to my selection by the Poetry Foundation when I was chosen for the Ruth Lilly Prize. And uh, again, that made, uh, that, was, that was a breakthrough because that had never uh, been given out to uh, the next writer before. And yet, 
there were response, there were needs that had to be met in the community. And I wanted to figure out a way to meet those needs as a poet. And this poem was a way of doing that. And so even before I got into the pages of Poetry Magazine, and even before I got recognized for, you know, by, by Don Scherer and so on and so forth, I made use of it at a benefit in New York City. It was a benefit in October of 2017. So I wrote the poem on deadline for that occasion. I also was involved in deciding where the funding should go, where the money we raised should go. We decided it should go to an organization called Comedores Sociales in Puerto Rico. Uh, community kitchens that were feeding people on the island uh, after the catastrophe, and especially given that the Trump administration did as little as humanly possible to intervene and meet uh, the needs of those who were suffering from that catastrophe. Uh, so the people of the island were doing it for themselves. I, I make a reference, in fact, in the poem to that. People uh, were well aware on the island of, of Trump's attitude towards Puerto Rico and Puerto Ricans. And they were doing what the federal government should have been doing, or their own government should have been doing locally. Mm -hmm. People are on the island are uh, incredibly industrious. It is in defiance of the stereotype of Puerto Ricans as lazy, which was the very stereotype that Trump was relying upon when he said that they want everything done for them. Mm -hmm. And uh, keep in mind that Donald Trump was born in New York. That Donald Trump, a little bit older, he's a decade or so older than I am, he grew up in New York City at the time the Puerto Ricans were beginning to migrate in, in big numbers to the city. And he and I, therefore, grew up with the same stereotypes of Puerto Ricans. He internalized them. Yeah. I rejected them because I grew up in an activist household. And my father was um, a community organizer. He was a political leader. Some would say the leader of the Puerto Rican community in New York in the 1960s. He was also a photographer, documentary photographer, who created something called the, the Puerto Rican Diaspora Documentary Project, the photo documentary, the Puerto Rican migration. And so that was my upbringing. I grew up with an ethos of resistance all around me. And therefore, uh, when, when all this came down, uh, that kicked in for me. Yeah. I was not only talking to my father's ashes in a box on my bookshelf, but I was thinking about how I could be a poet activist in service of this community when the community was in such crisis. And the way to do that was to use my voice. The way to do that was to write a poem. The way to do that was to participate in, in multiple benefits, which I did to raise more money for the same organization and for other organizations, and to raise consciousness too, to raise consciousness as well, to talk about this and talk about it and talk about it to do public appearances, readings, to, to do interviews uh, when it was possible. And the reason I was aware that that was important, and you and I know that this is true, that most people in this country don't know anything about Puerto Ricans. No. In fact, most of this country, knowledge of Puerto Ricans is limited to West Side Story. That's what people know about us, yep. West Side Story. Right? To most people in this country, pizza is Pizza Hut. 
Most people in this country, Puerto Ricans, West Side Story. And so we always need to struggle against that ignorance. The, the people who don't realize that Puerto Rico is part of the United States, moreover, that don't realize that Puerto Rico is a colony of the United States and has been since the Spanish-American War of 1898, mm -hmm. and that therefore it's treated like a colony. And when this disaster happened, that's exactly what the Trump administration did. They treated this island like a bastard stepchild, like a colony. Right. Didn't matter to them who died or how. And we now know, according to reliable studies, that the numbers were approximately 4,000. For a little island like Puerto Rico. And it wasn't until sometime in the 1950s, I wrote a poem about what happened at the um, House of Representatives in the 1950s. That's when it became a commonwealth. It was a colony, but then it became a commonwealth, I believe, in the 50s. Mm -hmm. People don't understand is that, and because we don't, we're not in history books. I never knew about my own culture until I read a book when I was a teenager called The Chronological History of Puerto Rico, which is out of print. Of course. Well, you know, colonized people are educated as colonized people. In other words, we are divorced from ourselves. We are uh, completely ignorant of the great figures of our history. You know, when I think of Ramon Emeterio Betances, who was a great liberator, who struggled for the independence of Puerto Rico, who was also a medical doctor, mm -hmm. and who, in fact, battled against the cholera epidemic on the island and started an abolitionist movement at the same time. This guy was amazing. Yeah. Nobody knows he exists. If it isn't an athlete or a pop singer, people can't even name a Puerto Rican. Yeah. You know? And so where, where does the history have to come from then? Who's going to write the history? We have to write it ourselves. Yeah. And, and poets have been writing history ever since there have been poets. You know, think mm -hmm. about Homer. And so I have no problem writing history. And what starts off as journalism, what starts off as a record of the moment in time, will become history, ultimately. That's what happened with my father as a photographer. When my father documented the Puerto Rican migration, uh, it was primarily, he started off by, by photographing uh, the civil rights movement in the 1960s. And, so, and, and he began by uh, photographing uh, our neighborhood, the community of East New York and Brooklyn in the 1960s. And then this evolved eventually to the point where he was documenting the Puerto Rican migration everywhere. Uh, he even went to Hawaii. Oh, yeah, that's an interesting one. Yeah. So, you know, this was my father taking this into his hands and documenting our existence. And what started off as journalism, you know, photojournalism basically in the 1980s, is now history. The faces he photographed in his travels from one Puerto Rican community to the next, including Chicago, including um, New York, of course, and New Jersey, and LA, and Hawaii, and even back to Puerto Rico to trace the reverse migration, those faces now belong to history. And for that matter, those, some of those photographs belong to the Smithsonian Institution as well. As you're speaking about that, I actually interviewed my father because he's in his 90s and he came 
with $20 back in the 50s. He's a little dark man and didn't speak a word of English. I could just imagine everything. I mean, he told me some of the stories. I understand how your dad works. I mean, you want to document that history because if you don't document it, who else is going to do it? Really? Exactly. And it's it's a very emotional experience. So it is you're you're celebrating the history, but you're also grieving it. Yeah. Part of what is happening in the poem, grieving. And even though my father died now, would be seven years ago, he died in 2014, I'm still grieving that loss. And I especially was grieving that loss during the, the, during the hurricane and in the aftermath of the hurricane, because I desperately wanted to talk to him. I wanted to hear what he would have said. My father, as you can tell, all the quotes in the poem, by the way, are, they, they were actual things that he said in his life. He was a, he spoke in a way that was very sharp, very cutting. He could be very sardonic. He could be very poetic. He was he would be very angry. But I wanted to hear that voice. I wanted to talk to him. And even though he was deaf as hell by the end of his life, I still would pick up the phone and talk to him, and sort of set, say something and let him go. You know, mm -hmm. let him talk. Let the man talk. He's seen everything. Yeah. And I wanted to hear him talk about what was going on. Not having that, I had to invent the other side of the conversation, which was fine. It's an act of imagination, it's what poets do. But I was grieving. And I was still grieving when I was invited to participate in a conference on the island of Puerto Rico in April of 2020, April of last year, at, at the University of Puerto Rico at Arecibo. The people who invited me were aware of the poem. So the first thing they said was, are you bringing the ashes? You're going to scatter the ashes, right? And so once they said this, that kicked the plan into motion. And I don't know, there are people out there who are well aware of what it means to scatter ashes. You don't tell anyone, usually. You keep it quiet. Well, I'm going to go here and to this lake, or I'm going to dump them out of a helicopter, whatever. You know, you, you actually... Most of the time, people keep it quiet. And the reason for that is that disposal of human remains is a very sensitive subject for, for various levels of government. They don't want you doing that. And in the case of flying from one place to another, you have to have a lot of documentation. So I had to get documentation from the mortuary where he was cremated in Pacifica, California. I had to get more documentation from the island. A friend of mine on the island had to agree to use her address as the destination for the uh, disposal of these uh, ashes. And, and then we had to come up with a strategy. Well, how are we going to get from me and the ashes, you know, to Puerto Rico and then from, from San Juan to Arecibo, from Arecibo to Utuado? We, and we had a plan. And I had, you know, a network. Everybody wanted in on this. And then, of course, the pandemic struck. And the conference was canceled. And I do mean canceled, unlike other things which were merely postponed or which were later done virtually. Mm -hmm. This was canceled. And it was canceled because UPR shut down. The disaster that uh, had affected the island several years earlier, still very much with us, along with various other disasters that plagued the island of Puerto Rico. And they just shut down. And it was never rescheduled. And so I never had the opportunity 
to scatter his ashes. And uh, only now, of course, have we recently started to fly again. There's some talk of bringing me there maybe next year for mm -hmm. something else. So I'm still hoping to do it. But when people ask me, what did you lose in the pandemic? I always talk about that. You know, the way that we grieve changed during the pandemic. All the funerals and memorial services that either didn't happen or happened uh, virtually on a screen or that happened in some terribly socially distant way. And then there was my experience where, you know, my father's ashes is still in that box and the box was still on the bookshelf. It would be hard for me to let it go after all of that because it's part of your home now. I don't know if I could scatter all the ashes. I think I would leave some just in case I wanted to have a conversation. Well, that was the plan. I wasn't going, yeah, that was always the plan. I mean, you've got seven pounds, I believe in, <laughs> you know, and that's heavy, you know, the haul around something like that. It, it's heavy. And, uh, you know, so I, I actually have the ashes of a friend. In fact, he was the editor of Curbstone Press, Sandy Taylor. And I, I had helped his, uh, his partner, Barry, his ashes um, actually at a place in Willimantic, Connecticut, Julio de Burgos Park, that he and a friend had co-founded this park and created it for the purposes of, of doing poetry readings. The park's still there, and Sandy's still there, too. I, and I kept some of them, yeah. you know, in a, in a coffee can. He was a big coffee drinker, and, and that's what I have. And, you know, so, yeah, you can always divide them up, I made a promise, and I made a promise in a poem, and I made the promise in a poem that was not only in Poetry Magazine, but a poem that is now included in a book called Floaters that was published by W.W. W. Norton in January. Mm -hmm. Not only a promise, but a public promise, yeah. and one that I intend to keep one day. Because, you know, it, it is true about the grieving. Like my uncle was in Puerto Rico during Hurricane uh, Maria. He was a hundred and four years old. And getting off the island was really difficult. He had to wait a couple months before he can actually get on a plane. He went to Texas. It wasn't easy. There was no electricity, having problems with all of the utilities. They're still grieving. It's like, I really want to go visit because I haven't been back to the island in many, many years to see just where it stands. Because you don't you have to dig mm. for information about what's going on. Yeah. And there's a one a journalist who really loves Puerto Rico, David Bernard. Am I saying his name right? And he loves Puerto Rico and was actually reporting what was actually happening at the time. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I haven't been back, obviously, since then. And from what I can tell, from what I can see, there is still a great deal of visible damage from the hurricane. That should tell you something. Yeah. Of course, there were all the earthquakes on top of that. Then there was COVID on top of that. And Puerto Rico is like the book of Job, you know? I'm sorry, I laugh because it's, that's so true. Well, you know, it, it's like that. And, and, and the fact that we are constantly clamoring to, to call attention to what's going on there. You know, we are, of course, also dealing with the 24-hour news cycle. You know, we're, we're dealing with the fact that this gets moved on. We, we're, we're, we're over this. We're not talking about this anymore. Even people who are able, by virtue of a uh, force of character, to call attention to this are no longer in the news. You think about the mayor of San Juan, yeah. Carmen Jonan Cruz, 
who so bravely stood up to President Trump at the time, and how everybody wanted to hear from her. And now, nothing. I, I don't hear anything yet. No. She's still out there. We're all still out there. But what can, what can you do at the end of the day? As they say, you know, la lucha's here. You know, the struggle goes on. And I do what I can. And, you know, you try to maintain relationships with communities to the extent that you possibly can. And then it's also a casualty of the pandemic that you become divorced from your own community or you become divorced from your the island where your your parents were born. There is all this distance that's created because we all ended up on screen. You know, part of what's going to happen in the fall for me, I know, is that I'm going to try to get back out there again into the community. You know, it'll it'll happen. You know, the people will start looking for me or I'll start looking for them. The loss from the pandemic was catastrophic for our community here, stateside. Mm -hmm. We know how disastrous it was for essential workers. The vast majority of Puerto Ricans who are employed are employed as what we would define as essential workers. We know how hard this pandemic hit the Latinx community of which we are a part. Yes. You know, and we, we know that it struck the island hard as well. So we are, you know, we are, we are part of a, a larger humanity and, and we have to respond to human need wherever we find it. But we also have to think about the community we come from and the way in which it has been neglected to death. Yeah. And, and the poem is, is also a response to that. I remember when I was in high school, I had a cousin who was part of the Puerto Ricans party. I didn't know anything about our culture until then. I mean, I knew the food and mannerisms and ways of, of stating things, but I didn't know the history until he pointed it out to me. And it was a struggle that we were really fighting to just be heard. Not for any other reason, just to be heard. The book, The Chronological History of Puerto Rico, which is now out of print, really educated me on what was happening and the strip mining that happened in Puerto Rico. Even as it being our heritage, sometimes we don't know. We don't get educated in it. No, not at all. I, mean, I, <laughs> I, I never had the opportunity to study anything about Puerto Rico or Puerto Ricans in school. I am overeducated, you know. I didn't have a Puerto Rican teacher until I got to law school at Northeastern University Law School. His name was Manuel Rodriguez Orellana. And as a matter of fact, he was very involved in the PEEP, Puerto Rican Independence Party. But long before that, I had had teachers. You know, we, we talk about our teachers and it's important to recognize that many of our teachers, many of our most important teachers are not in the classroom. Think, for example, of a man named Luis Cardenacota, who was a Puerto Rican and Dominican. He was a community organizer, brilliant community organizer, and the founder of something called El Puente, a multi-service community center in Los Sures, the Williamsburg section of Brooklyn. And it's still there. I mean, Luis passed away a couple of years ago, but El Puente is still very much with us. Luis 
was very important to my education. When I was about 20 years old, he handed me a book. Mm-hmm. And when, as he handed me the book very dramatically, <laughs> he said, you are going to be a poet. And I grumbled at him. And then I looked at the book. The book was called Latin American Revolutionary Poetry. Mm. It was edited by Roberto Marquez, who happens to be Puerto Rican from New York as well. It was extraordinary to open this book and realize that I was part of something so much bigger than myself. The first thing I noticed was a poem called Puerto Rican Obituary by Pedro Pietri, a New York Puerto Rican poet. But then I went beyond that because here was another poem by Nicolas Guillén, the great Afro-Cuban poet. And here's another poem by Ernesto Cardenal, the great poet priest of Nicaragua about the Samosa dictatorship and the revolution against of all of that. And all of a sudden, I, I felt this world opening up to me. And it was Puerto Rico, but it was also Latin America. And then I began to realize what the role of the United States had been in Latin America from the mid-19th century to the present day. And that's when I discovered our history, uh, the Spanish-American War of 1898, and the subsequent colonization of the island. And yes, it's called a commonwealth today, but to me a commonwealth is a contradiction in terms. Mm-hmm. And you know, we, we are of course looking at an island where the people who live there cannot vote for president, yeah. but they can still be drafted and sent to fight and die in the wars of this country, which began with the First World War. Puerto Ricans were made citizens, at the time of the First World War, just in time to draft thousands of Puerto Rican mm-hmm. men and send them to fight in World War I. Mm-hmm. When, uh, so it was not an act of generosity or largesse. It was um, political from the beginning. And so, yes, all of this was denied to us in the classroom, and yet we, we needed to find our teachers elsewhere. That's why I think of Luis Cardenas Costa. That's why I think of Jack Agueros who was a wonderful Puerto Rican poet and playwright, essayist and translator. And he was the director of something called El Museo del Barrio, which was at the time the only Puerto Rican museum in the mainland United States, in East Harlem. So I learned from Jack. And by the way, I mentioned my book Floaters earlier. There is a poem in here for my father, which you just heard, but there's also a poem in here for Luis. There's a poem in here for Jack. There's a poem here about Dr. Ramon Emeterio Betances. You know, I want to pay homage to my teachers. I want to pay homage to my elders because they're the ones who made it possible for me to recover from cultural and political amnesia. As my friend David Velasquez, who was himself a community organizer and another influence, once put it to me, when I was bewailing my own ignorance, quote, you are the subject of cultural aggression. You don't think of it that way. We don't think of it when we, when we are not taught our own history, when we're not taught who we are, when we start losing our Spanish. Not an accident. There are no coincidences in this, in this society. Yeah. If we are losing our Spanish, it's because our parents had it beaten out of them in the schools. I remember when since my parents first came from Puerto Rico, I was like the firstborn in Chicago. They spoke no English. 
And so my first language is actually Spanish. And I remember being in my first grade class, I was punished for not knowing how to speak English. So it was beaten out of you. I mean, yeah. it's either beaten out of our parents or it's beaten out of us. The fact of the matter is that Spanish has been repressed in this country, right? And it may have begun as a language as, uh, in Latin America as the language of the conqueror five mm -hmm. centuries ago. Mm -hmm. But in this country, Spanish is the language of uh, an oppressed and repressed community. And mm -hmm. so the history of the Spanish language in this country is the history of repression, is the history of Spanish being banned in school. I can recall one case I had when I worked as a lawyer. Mm -hmm. uh, this is now taking me back many years. Uh, I was in the late 1980s. I was working for an organization called META, Multicultural Education Training and Advocacy. It was a nonprofit public interest law firm based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It specialized in the rights of linguistic and cultural minorities. And so we took on cases from all over the country. We were part of a class action suit in Texas. But the case I remember very clearly is a case from Lynn, Massachusetts, where at the time, I mean, the majority of Latinos there were uh, Dominicans. And, and I believe still are. And in Lynn, uh, we got a call from uh, the uh, Hispanic Parent Advisory, someone on the Hispanic Parent Advisory Council called us. And we were connected to those kinds of groups and, and committees. And, and she said, would you please come to Lynn and Lynn English High School? They have just banned Spanish at lunchtime. Now, can you imagine doing that in LA? No. <laughs> okay. So it was, you know, but Lynn, uh, that was also a logistical problem because mm -hmm. you had this huge population of Dominicans and, and Puerto Ricans, and they were not allowed to speak Spanish at lunchtime at Lynn English High School. So we visited the high school. Mm -hmm. We had a hearing with the principal. We explained to him that there was this document called the United States Constitution, and then they changed the policy. Uh, I remember very clearly, though, thinking at the time, um, that one of the purposes of poetry, one of the best purposes of poetry is revenge. And so... Or I, enlightenment. <laughs> well, so I wrote a poem about the principal. Um, I called it the new bathroom policy at English <laughs> high school, where I, I imagined him, I imagined him in his stall and, and he, and he couldn't get any, he couldn't get it done because, uh, you know, he heard somebody speaking Spanish in the bathroom. These are, again, we talk about, oftentimes, you know, we internalize a sense of guilt and shame uh, because of what we do not know, because our identities have been in some way twisted, and we, we end up blaming ourselves. Yeah. It's very important to remember that, say, you're Puerto Rican and you've never been to Puerto Rico, or you can't speak Spanish, or you don't know the history, it's not your fault. This is the product of, of policy. It's the product of uh, colonization that began in 1898 and still going on. My second grade teacher knew I was smart. I understood English, couldn't speak it. But my first grade teacher would always punish me. I always had to like write a paper or I had to write the same sentence over and over again, or I have, would have to sit in the back of the room. And it was like, wow, could you imagine if I went through that? what my dad went through when he came. 
a little mm -hmm. dark man that doesn't speak English. Yeah, it's also it's important to remember something else, which is that in Puerto Rico, there was the imposition of English on the school system and the courts, especially the federal courts. My father, born in 1930, mm -hmm. grew up in Puerto Rico, left the island in, originally in 1941, but he remembered with some bitterness that he had been punished for speaking Spanish in school in Puerto Rico. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, my God. You know, there's a famous short story, and I can't remember the author, but it's called Peo Merces Teaches English. The problem was you had all these teachers who couldn't speak English, and they were trying to speak English to all these kids who couldn't speak English. And it results in these sort of, uh, colonialism is surreal. It's, it's full of absurdities. You know, we, we can go on and on about the Puerto Rican flag, for God's sake. And most of the time, I'm not very big on flags, mm -hmm. except when it's the flag of a colonized people, because then it means something different. Yes. That's why you see Puerto Rican flags all over the place. And I'll tell you, in New York City, before 9-11, there were more Puerto Rican flags than American flags on display, because it's one way the Puerto Ricans can, can express that sensibility. But so we move forward, as they say, palante, palante, como el elefante. And so what do I do? You know, I do what a poet does. I write, I write the stuff. I've been writing poetry. I mean, I'm nowhere near your caliber. And I have great admiration for what you have done. I think I needed to deal with the bicultural aspect when I wrote poetry. Because you had to be one way at school and one way at home. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And then the other thing is, of course, the, the dynamic between Puerto Ricans who were born in the United States mm -hmm. and those who were born on the island. And if you went to Puerto Rico as a kid, well, you know, and your Spanish wasn't great, you were going to get questioned, let's yes. put it that way. <laughs> and the fact of the matter is that, you know, this is, again, the essence of being colonized is you are divided, divide and rule. Mm -hmm. And so that's, of course, the way it was reflected in the way we, it was reflected in the way we dealt with each other. So, but at the end of the day, we have to come back to being our own historians, being our own organizers. We, we have to build things that are there. And, and so often it means starting over. So yeah. often it means losing whatever you had and starting over again, you know? And, and so I think in this case, in the case of our, of the island or the community, we simply have to do what our parents did and their parents, you know, you, you, you have to persist and you have to insist and you have to speak out. We have to do the work for our, you know, we do have to do the political work. At the end of the day, we have to be tolerant of each other. Yeah. We have to be taught of our own faults, our own failings, our own shortcomings, our struggles, whether they are struggles with the language or the culture or the history. We have to be generous with each other because otherwise we're just going to end up right where we started. And, and being accepting of self. I find that when I started really accepting like who I am and my essence, it was so much easier to dig into it because honestly, the first time I read a book about what happened in Puerto Rico, it really hit me to the core. I never knew that. 
And I'm like, wow, how do I not know this? And it wasn't until my cousin introduced me to it that I knew what was happening. And I think as a culture, we are proud people, pretty proud of our heritage once we know it, or at least for our home. My mama was promoted education. I was always inquisitive and, you know, we all grew up that way. So it really helped me to see other aspects. I do the same thing with people's religions or politics. I'm trying to see the different aspects of how they think. But is there anything in closing that you would like to add? Well, you know, when we have conversations like this, I always try to remember everybody and I always forget somebody. So I I talked about the people who taught me, you know, the history, the, the, the culture, the language, the identity the community. I mentioned, of course, my father, Frank Espada. Check out his photographs online. They're out there, Puerto Rican Diaspora Documentary Project. Look at the collections of the Smithsonian Museum of American History, Smithsonian Museum of American Art, National Poetry Gallery, Library of Congress. You know, look up Luis Cardenas Costa. Look up Jack Agueros. Read the poetry of Jack Agueros, A-G-U-E-R-O-S. You know, I've got poems about all of them in this book, floaters, but I've left somebody out, of course. Um, You know, my education was also enabled and enacted by a man named Clemente Soto Vélez. You talk about living history. Clemente Soto Vélez was born in Lares, Puerto Rico, in 1905. Wow. That means when he was born, he was born into a town, into a place where people had a living memory of the uprising in 1868 against the Spanish called the Grito de Lares. So he was a living connection to that failed rebellion in 1868 that was spearheaded by Betances. So he had that memory. But Soto Vélez was also part of the movement of the Nationalist Party in the 1930s to make Puerto Rico independent movement against, of course, the U.S. presence there. And so he was one of the top lieutenants of Pedro Albizu Campos. And Albizu, of course, was the head of the Nationalist Party of Puerto mm-hmm. Rico. The United States repressed the Nationalist Party and they threw the leaders in prison. That included my friend Clemente Soto Vélez, who served six years in prison between 1936 and 1942 for what they call seditious conspiracy. (laughs) He got out, he settled in New York, he began organizing there, and he mentored generations of activists, artists, writers, poets like me. And I was blessed to know him, to call him friend in the 1980s, and he ultimately died in 1993. But, you know, when he, I remember, this was another one of those gestures, just like the one I described earlier with Luis Cardenacorta. When Clemente Soto Vélez signed a book to me, and he called me Poeta Puertorriqueño, Poeta Revolucionario. I mean, I looked at that, and I remember holding it, the little book to my chest. Because when he said it, when he heard me read Mm -hmm. my poems, and I was just starting out, and he said what he said, Poeta Puerto Rican, 
poeta de, de la revolución. Oh my God. I learned so much from him, but above all, I learned acceptance. He accepted me. Yeah. He, he said, yes, you are exactly who you say you are. And that is so important, no matter who you are. And so the way I was able to pay that back was that I co-translated his work with Camilo Perez Bustillo. We published a collection of his poems with Curbstone in 1991. And then he died in 1993. And um, when I visited his grave with some others, discovered that his grave in Lattice had was unmarked. Oh. And so we bought him a headstone, gave him his name back. It was the least I could do, you know, for my teacher and for the man who instructed me in the principle of resistance. And that's the principle that I carry with me with the poems, very much like the poem you heard me write. I'm, I'm sorry, the poem you heard me read today. It's ultimately all about that. En la brega, en yeah. la lucha. And it's always a lucha. Yep, always yeah. a struggle. But it's not like the struggle of opening a doorknob. It's <laughs> opening a door. That, like the doorknob, the doorknob came off. No, it's it's obviously in Spanish, lucha has a very political connotation. Yeah. That's what I was taught. That's the common denominator. All these teachers I had that I'm talking about, they, you know, they weren't, they weren't sitting at home, staring at the ceiling and getting drunk. They were out there and they were fighting what is called the good fight. And we wouldn't be there. We wouldn't be here without them. And their weapon was their words versus violence. I want to so thank you for being on the show. It was very moving for me. So thank you. Well, you're very welcome. And thank you for having me. And I, I really wish I could have more conversations like this one. Yes, definitely. Thank you for listening to the Poetic Resurrection Podcast. Please visit us and subscribe to our newsletter at PoeticResurrection.com for the latest information and updates. <laughs>